0: Welcome to the ASHP Advantage podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare, Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Rachel Wolf. I'm the perioperative clinical pharmacy specialist at Barnes-Jewish Hospital and Washington University Physicians in St. Louis, Missouri. And I'm joined by Ross Renew, who is an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Today's episode is a part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, Featuring Conversations with Top-Level Practitioners. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Merck. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional activities on this topic are available at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash NMBR. Thanks for joining us today. All right. So let's get started with this podcast. And we have a discussion. Um, let's start off by discussing what is the current process of neuromuscular blockade monitoring and even the use of neuromuscular blocking agents at each of our institutions. Um, Dr. Renee, why don't you um, take this to begin with?
1: Thanks, Rachel. I think this is an important place to start too, because we have to recognize that there's a lot of Heterogeneity and how people handle neuromuscular blockade management, and it's one thing to make a recommendation and, and give you data on on certain topics, but if it doesn't fit within your institution's culture and resources available, then um, it's, it really won't be won't be as effective. Uh, At my institution, I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. We have a couple local champions, such as myself, on neuromuscular blockade management. So we're, we're, um, fortunate enough to have a couple different kinds of uh, quantitative neuromuscular monitors. There are an occasional peripheral nerve stimulators at our institution, but our anesthesia practitioners, nurse anesthetists, anesthesia residents, anesthesiologists are strongly encouraged to utilize our quantitative monitoring. Uh, We have couple modalities, and this is not an endorsement for any specific product, but for acceleromyography, we utilize the Philips Intelliview NMT device. Uh, It's acceleromyography-based. For electromyography-based monitor, we're currently utilizing the uh, TetraGraph, which is made by a company called Senzyme. And then, like I said, we do have a couple peripheral nerve stimulators available um, uh, for our practitioners. We also are unique in that we have unrestricted sugamidex use. I, I recognize that this is a little uncommon and not every institution may have unrestricted sugamidex use given the the cost associated with it. Um, but nonetheless that's the, uh, the our current practice and it's had downstream effects on which neuromuscular blocking agents we use because we have we use sugamidex nearly all the time for our patients. We utilize rocuronium as our primary um, neuromuscular blocking agent because of its strong affinity to sugammadex. Uh, I actually went back and looked to see when we use neostigmine or cisatracurium at our institution, and and. Almost all these instances were when we, when we had to reinstitute neuromuscular blockade in a patient who previously received rocuronium and sugambidex. So, um, just to give you a little background, that's that's kind of where we stand as far as uh, uh, the resources and, and what we're utilizing at my institution. What do you guys do at your institution?
0: Yeah. Thanks for asking. So we also kind of very similar to you. So we are an adult tertiary academic medical center. Um, Our primary uh, neuromuscular blocker utilizes rocuronium, but we do have a myriad of use of our reversal agents. So we only reverse about 25% of our neuromuscular blockade with Sugamidex. Uh, about 53% of them are reversed with neostigmine, and I still have a little bit of a subset that I am either showing that we have, we're either allowing spontaneous reversal, which we most of us at least should know that that's not ideal for our patients. It does increase our patients' risk for postoperative pulmonary complications, but that also could be an artifact of perhaps omission in documentation. So, but nonetheless, we do have you know a variety of reversal. Um, occurring, so we're not fully um, reversing with Sugamidex like you are um, at your institution. And as related to the monitoring, we... uh We have both quantitative and qualitative monitoring. I do say that we have not adopted quantitative monitoring um, as much as I would like at this point, but a lot of that has been related to sometimes the user friendliness and the reliability of the neuromuscular monitoring devices that I think we'll talk about um, hopefully in this talk a little bit more. But we have both the Philips teleview uh, device that like you mentioned was uh, operates utilizing the acceleromyography technology. And then we have just a handful of the TwitchView devices that uses the electromyography technology. And so um, hopefully uh, we'll be starting to utilize more quantitative monitoring, but with the Philips being connected with our EMR the most uh, accessible and uh, in the EMR that we that I'm able to really review as a pharmacist is oftentimes just the the you know from the peripheral nerve stimulator um, and the the IntelliView where you either just get your your um, four out of four twitches or the ratio from that device so looking at some of the questions that we have today that I think the audience might actually really kind of help I guess, put into context the situation that anesthesia clinicians are undergoing whenever they are thinking about um, putting a patient under general anesthesia and utilizing neuromuscular blockade. Um, So I think it would be, I think it just would be helpful for the audience to understand what exactly is happening and going through the mindset of an anesthesia clinician. So can you describe the sequence of events and thought processes related to neuromuscular blocker use in the OR? And let's start off with how do you decide, Which one to use, and how do you determine the induction dose?
1: Sure, I think the I want to start off by talking about succinylcholine uh, briefly. Uh, I'll say that comparing notes with other people in this field, comparing notes with clinicians at my institution as well as outside my institution, really the the amount of succinylcholine that's being used is I think it's decreasing, and we're, we're recognizing more and more the the side effects that uh it can have particularly with uh, post-operative myalgias um in my hands succinylcholine the only time that i i use it is if somebody is i'm really really worried about aspiration and they're going to get a rapid sequence induction and intubation uh, it just has a more it has a very very consistent onset of action and onset of blockade and when i'm when someone's a full stomach or if they have like a small bowel obstruction gastroparesis and i'm really really worried about it then I, th- there there is a role for it here the other role for succinylcholine would be if we're doing maybe neurosurgery and we're going to be monitoring uh, motor evoked potentials and we don't need and actually don't want neuromuscular blockade management for the duration of the case a single into Debating dose of succinylcholine is uh, is uh, reasonable in that setting, but otherwise, those are really the only times I'm using succs as far as uh, a, an induction agent to establish neuromuscular blockade. Uh, rocuronium has that similar onset of action. If we increase the dose up to that 1.2 mg per kg of rocuronium, at that point, we're getting similar behavior to succinylcholine. We can have a similar onset of action. It may not be as consistent across an entire population, but with increasing that dose, we do have that capability to have a rapid onset of action also, we have the uh, ability to utilize Sugamidex in that dreaded can't, intu- in- can't intubate, can't ventilate scenario uh, that has been described. That's at that 16 milligrams per kilogram dosing. I've never had to give it. I hope I never have to uh, never have to do that. But I have taken the steps to say. This patient could potentially be difficult to intubate, could potentially be difficult to ventilate. So I'm going to go ahead and think in my head, what's the dose of Sugamidex at 16 mg per gig and make sure I have enough of it in the room. We we didn't open it, um, but we knew that if there was an emergency situation, we had at least thought about it, try to save some time so that we could rescue that patient. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, I'm using a lot of rocuronium, cisatracurium. I'm utilizing when the patients have end-stage renal disease and end-stage liver disease, but actually we're challenging that um, a little bit more and, and finding that um, with, with the uh, capabilities of Sugamidex and rocuronium that uh, in this patient population with organ impairment, that, that it may be useful. I like getting the monitors on uh, pre-induction as well so that I can have a good idea of the depth of level of blockade for our patients.
0: So tell me more about intraoperative monitoring. Um, How do you utilize it to to administer supplemental doses of neuromuscular blockade? And I'd also like you to kind of provide a little bit more insight into what happens um, in the course of when the surgeon lets you know that they're nearing the completion of surgery and how do you utilize neuromuscular monitoring in that setting? Uh, What kind of decisions are being made relating to lightening up sedation, administering reversal agents, et cetera?
1: Thanks. I, th- I think it's a good question, and um, there's uh, this is part of the fun of anesthesia. I think is is you know we're always thinking about monitoring our patients. How are we going to maintain hemodynamic stability and ultimately give the pa- our patients the best chance for having great recovery and and return to their their normal functional status uh, after the operation? You know, you, you mentioned the monitors that you have at your institution, and I'll use those to highlight you know some of the intraoperative considerations. So there's a couple different quantitative monitoring modalities. Let, let's assume that you're utilizing that Philips Intelliview acceleromyography-based device that you have on the patient, and you put it on pre-induction. You, you uh, start monitoring after you give an intubating dose of a neuromuscular blocking agent. And once the train of four count is zero, you go to intubate, which would be indicative of great intubating conditions. Now, how do you decide when the patient needs a top-off dose or a maintenance dose to continue with that level of blockade? We could have a whole discussion also on what level of blockade is needed for specific operations. I certainly have been a part of discussions where we we debate: Do you need a deep level of blockade for laparoscopic surgery, for instance, or it's a moderate level of blockade? And really, I want to save that discussion for for another time because that that is is controversial in of itself. But when we start monitoring and determining when we're going to re-administer neuromuscular blocking agent. In this example, where we're using an AMG device, if the arms are out and the thumb can freely move, I would re-administer once you have a train of four count of one. And I, I go on to specify that the arms have to be out because when you tuck the arms, that device isn't gonna reliably work. The thumb has to be able to freely move. So when we have a train of four count of one, that's that's indicative of recovery to a moderate level of blockade. And I'm gonna give a, a, a maintenance dose to, to establish that. We can. I, I like the, the idea that we give little bits and recheck with our monitor and, and, and reestablish. Uh, you can always give more, you can never take it away. Now, if you have uh, if you're using electromyography and the arms are tucked, then that device will uh, provide adequate measurements. I I believe you guys are using that Twitch View device Um, that will give you an adequate uh, reading in that instance if the arms are tucked and you're using the the AMG device, though, you're going to have to put a peripheral nerve stimulator on the face. And there's just some, some caution with that. The face recovers much faster than the hand. Okay. And so when you have a train of four count of three or four at the face, you may only have a train of four count of one at the hand, if you could adequately monitor there. And so just to, just to keep that in mind, I think that when we're monitoring at the face, we have a tendency to maintain deeper levels of blockade. And then when it's time to reverse the patient, ensure adequate recovery, I wanna urge everyone listening to to make that extra step to free up the arms and confirm adequate recovery at the hand so that we know um, our patient has achieved an adequate recovery, which is a train of four count of ratio, a train of four ratio greater than or equal to 0.9 as measured at the hand, stimulating the ulnar nerve, monitoring the adductor pollicis. If you're looking at the face to confirm adequate recovery, this is a setup for overestimating the degree of recovery and leaving our patients with residual weakness.
0: It's so important for our audience to, to understand related to the importance of our monitors, how they work and the goals in which we're trying to achieve, and the location, like you mentioned, where we're obtaining the data from. So we certainly know with monitors, there is a cost associated with those monitors. Like everything else, what do you, is is the cost of the monitors worth the investment?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we, we can't have a meaningful discussion on this without looking at dollar signs, honestly. And uh, you know, it's with monitors, it's with with the drugs that we're using. Uh, I, I mean it's 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 actually absolutely, absolutely important to be good stewards of, of neuromuscular blockade management. I think that when we start considering monitoring and the cost of it, we look at the, you know, certainly there's the cost of the device, which each manufacturer is going to be a little bit different. And then there's the cost of the disposables. Uh, again, each each manufacturer is going to be a little bit different there as well. Uh, most of the acceleromyography devices, you can utilize ECG electrodes that are readily available in your department. And uh, so minimal cost with the disposables there. Uh, EMG, uh, most of the devices use a proprietary set of electrodes that comes with additional cost uh, per, for each patient. Um, so th- these are important considerations, and then the other cost consideration is with drugs of reversal. So there's Sugamidex versus Neostigmine. Neostigmine had a was was a little bit more expensive several years ago because there was only one manufacturer of it that went through this trouble of getting retroactive FDA approval, uh, but that cost has since come down, and so Sugamidex is uh, typically more expensive. It's on the order of 80 to a hundred dollars for a two a CC vial, depending on your institution's contract. So there's added cost with using Sugamidex, added cost with using quantitative monitoring. But I, I don't want to just look at the those specific costs. I think that we have to look at the big picture you know, and put it in the context of a lot of these operations cost tens of thousands of dollars. OK, so when we're looking at the added cost of a reversal agent adding, you know, 60, 70 dollars in the grand scheme of things of, of a, of a $20,000 laparoscopic cholecystectomy, just kind of using round ballpark numbers here, um, I, I think it's important to, to look at those relative the entire cost. The cost of having a patient reintubated and ending up in the ICU is a huge burden to the healthcare system. Now, it doesn't happen often, but uh, when it when it happens, it has a big impact on financials, and more importantly, it has an impact on patient safety. Uh, the multi center uh, outcomes group, uh, the MPOG group, um, had uh, conducted the Stronger trial a couple years ago that was out of uh, published in Anesthesiology. And I was looking through some of their analysis recently, and they described an adjusted number needed to treat to avoid postoperative pulmonary complications of around 70, 71 patients. And when you start considering that number needed to treat to avoid a postoperative pulmonary complication, the cost savings, when we look at a bigger picture, becomes a little bit more apparent. The cost of of having patients with postoperative residual weakness that go on to have complications from that, meaning a postoperative pulmonary complications, it's significant and we need to take steps to minimize that.
0: Yeah, I certainly agree. I think that awareness of residual neuromuscular block blocker weaknesses is growing across the nation. And thanks to, honestly, thanks to Sugamidex being introduced and kind of questioning the status quo of how we typically have been um, managing the reversal and really the monitoring of neuromuscular blockade in the OR. So we're having a lot more attention. And I think I can even say for our space within um, BJH, looking recently at our PACU So, Dr. Renu, how do you think that that actually would even tie into the perioperative efficiency? So, we know there's some data out there talking about the efficiency in which we can afford by reversing with an agent such as Sugamidex that can reverse much more quicker.
1: Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. So, you know, we know that Sugamidex reverses faster than neostigmine. But the, the fact is there's a lot of things going on around the time of closure. I know I know you asked me earlier about the surgeon giving you some lead time to when that happens. And yeah, that that's great when it happens, but I, I promise you it does not happen as much as we'd like it to. And so uh having uh, an experienced, uh vigilant anesthesia provider who knows where things are going and knows how long it takes them to close fascia, or how long it's gonna take them to close skin um, really allows allows us to time our uh, reversal agent so that we can maximize efficiency and ultimately restore neuromuscular function and get them out of the operating room in a safe, timely manner. But just because we've restored neuromuscular function, just because Sugamidex worked in two to five minutes or Neostigmine worked in 15 to 20 minutes, there's other things going on. I mean, is, is the PACI ready to receive us? Has the volatile anesthetic um, worn off? Has did we turn the propofol off if we're running a, a intravenous anesthetic? Did we turn that off in in time? Um, so there's a lot of factors as far as emerging from anesthesia and restoring neuromuscular function. We just got to make sure that we're we're restoring neuromuscular function um, before we our patients are awake. The last thing we want is our patients to to be awake but still weak and have that um, that that uh, feeling, which can be incredibly uncomfortable um, for for patients. And so, yeah, th- it's nice to, to think that by using a faster reversal agent, we'll get out of the operating room sooner, and, and maybe even we get out of the PACU sooner. There, there is some evidence that suggests that PACU length of stay can be impacted based on uh, leaving patients with residual weakness and based on the type of um, reversal agent that we use. Um, so, you know, while, while we talked about the cost of the drug and the cost to monitor, the monitoring, certainly one of the most expensive of things is operating room time, PACU time. These are these are not negligible uh, features that, imp- that have uh, significant economic impacts.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think as that data, as we look at the data, trying to decipher perioperative efficiency, I do find that um, especially the OR emergence time or the OR recovery time, there's so many things that go into it, but the key really one is is related to the succession in which you're performing your task uh, related to you can't stop the sedative until after um, you have reverse neuromuscular blockade and then the timing um, in which you do all those things. So a lot of times if you're, I looked at originally at the data, looking at our data, um, emer- you know, time of administration of the reversal agent to wheels out of the OR and I found only mi- minimal differences so like four or five minute differences between sugammadex and neostigmine coming to find you know and just doing, doing more realization it's related to all the PK and PD of all the other drugs that we're giving in addition to things such as the time it takes for the resident to close uh, the incision and and we're a teaching institution and that can be variable in time and very much a confounding factor in how efficient your anesthesia clinician really could have been at the whole emergence um, component of the recovery time from the OR. So, all very important things, and so many confounding factors, and so many workflows that, um, that really can either um, be an obstacle in actually achieving shorter PACU lengths of stay um, and shorter, of course, recovery times that we've mentioned in the OR. Um, yeah, But I think I, that's one thing that we can strive to, sorry about that, but can strive yeah. to is just getting everyone on the same page to try to, um, to increase your success at moving patients more efficiently along the continuum.
1: Yeah, I, I don't want to um, tell on my specialty, but uh, we sometimes are not, you know, we, we will document our reversal agent, but when we gave it the timing of which, uh, I mean, there's, you, it's a very busy time, and so mm-hmm. uh, you know we'll certainly kind of plop it down about where we think it happened, and so that's been one of the obstacles I've had when trying to look at some retrospective data on whether or not we're we're saving time by it. But I did want to say we've been talking about the the speed of Sugamidex, but uh, I, I still think that there, if you can time neostigmine, and ha- and avoid residual weakness okay there is still a role for neostigmine it's just it needs more lead time we got to remember that the onset of action is is not as fast but if you are in tune with when they're going to finish up you can uh administer neostigmine towards the end of an operation, if you can time it appropriately, knowing that it's gonna peak 15, 20, 25 minutes, depending on the level of blockade. Um, and I would I would encourage to only administer at a train of four count of four um, shallow levels of blockade, still utilize our quantitative monitoring. Um, I, I think that we can have, uh, uh, this drug can also still prevent residual weakness and, st- and is still a viable option in that setting.
0: Yeah, you bring up a good point because even a lot of the data, while I make capture my reversal time administration and my OR out administration, I've not really captured or cannot really guarantee that my patient had no residual neuromuscular blockade at the time that the, um, the, the patient was extubated. So that's another thing that while we're looking at these efficiency data, um, we are really probably not comparing apples to apples because our patients are at different states um, at the point in which they are likely extubated, whether you gave sugammadex. or or neostigmine because as we know um, based off data from the recite canada study and the recite us study um, really current state when neostigmine is utilized for um, reversal we're sending patients or extubating patients at uh rates of 63 65 percent uh residual neuromuscular blockade at that time so so certainly i think um We have to keep eye on what we're trying to achieve, and that is to utilize neuromuscular blockers safely within the OR. That takes monitoring, uh, letting us know what depth of blockade we're at, and then else that helps us guide what reversal agents necessary um, at the time of extubation and whether neostigmine can be used. So the light levels of blockade are train of four, four out of four, um, or if you're at a uh, more of a, of a deeper to moderate blockade, then Sugamidex is likely going to be your best agent um, in that setting, just so that way you have a, um, increased um, Chance that the patient will be fully and completely recovered at the time of extubation, and again, monitoring is so important.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you, uh, Rachel. Um, and yeah, I have to admit, when when we started talking about getting together to address this topic and 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 develop some educational materials such as this, uh, it. it reminded me that I haven't partnered with our pharmacy comprehensively, and uh, I was getting excited about the potential to to establish multidisciplinary efforts to try to attack this problem um, because, you know, it's embarrassing that Uh, My specialty has we've just done a lousy job, like you alluded to, the incidence of postoperative residual weakness is largely unchanged for decades, despite people um, standing on their soapbox and kind of shouting and having an abundance of literature that demonstrating the complications associated with it. What do you think are some of the strategies with with a multidisciplinary approach that uh, an institution could utilize to try to help implement optimal neuromuscular blockade management with still having an idea and the mindset that we want to be
0: conscientious So, yeah, so I think there's a lot of things that we can do. One, I think, is really beginning with developing that relationship and, as you mentioned, just partnering with, um, with each other. So, developing relationships within uh, the Department of the Anesthesiology is certainly key and has been key to to I feel what I've been successful here. You know, I know that we are an institution that we try to balance. Uh, still use neostigmine, but you know, use Sugamidex in our high-risk patients, and we'll respect, uh, have a respectful mutual agreement on on the clinicians being able to use their clinical judgment. And, and as a result, I think we're, as I mentioned, we're sitting about 25% of our reversals with Sugamidex and 50% with neostigmine. And I, I feel fairly good about that here, versus feeling completely overwhelmed. Um, by trying to say, you know, we, from pharmacy standpoint, if you're at an institution that feels like you've lost control. So I really think that partnership um, is extremely important. Um, Things that pharmacy can think about is, you know, related to the storage location. I certainly know that um, there are the the concerns related to, you know, if I need it emergently, how can I get it? But at the same time, you know, what ways can you encourage accountability? So perhaps it's in a locked, um, it's like, you know, treated like a narcotic and a locked door to where you have to sign in and sign out to get it. Or. Or perhaps you do just keep it in your or pharmacy satellites i think some of those just at least give someone second thought related to um, when i want to use this and and um and should i be using this particular agent in this particular setting um, if we do in fact have resource um, uh, considerations financial resource considerations. There could be things like high dose notifications. you know if I there have been some of instances in which I'd monitor my data if I see a 1600 milligram dose, uh, I'll review the case and perhaps whenever I see that maybe they were under the impression that if my if the train of four was zero out of zero, but at the end of the case um, that it necessitated a 16mg per keg dose, you know, I would just provide that opportunity to educate those clinicians. And you know you can really set that dose notification um, at any level. Um, just in knowing, though, being in tune to what is um, appropriate dosing, the two, the four, the 16 mg per keg dosing. I've heard of other institutions doing things such as um, Pixis Alerts. You can use the alert system within Pixis that, whenever you do take it out, it'll give you a little, um, you can say whatever, but I think there's capped characters, but um, that can just remind you of perhaps maybe usage criteria or um, provides you some, some selected options in which why you're selecting to utilize the gamut X for reversal on this particular um, blockade. Always, I'm, I'm a big proponent of technology and trying to be innovative with the way that we 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 look at the EMR and build in clinical tech clinical decision support that can help guide clinicians in making some of the their decisions, such as alerting them on high risk patient populations. and And I think that that actually really has a lot of opportunity um, to to be leveraged in the near future.
1: Yeah. Um... I completely agree. I like the what you said about accountability and in partnering with with anesthesiology. If if I think if we knew that we were getting checked as far as our uh, how much like sugamidex, for instance. We were using I I think it could have an impact Uh, at at my institution I uh, we've developed a system where we look to see whenever people utilize the four milligrams per kilogram dose. You know what what was going on did was there an opportunity to not maintain that deep level of blockade up until the point of the conclusion of the operation and so that's been our focus to this point is trying to keep people. Uh, keep, keep clinicians comfortable maintaining moderate levels of blockade so we can utilize that two milligrams per kilogram dose. Um, and and uh, perhaps uh, reduce the amount of of sugammadex, the dose that we need. And in instances where we have um, shallow levels of blockade, you know, there is a role for neostigmine. But again, I, I encourage everyone to to utilize their monitors to confirm uh, to uh, confirm adequate recovery. Anytime we start kind of deviating or, or seeing how patients respond, uh, we need to be utilizing the the devices that that let us know where we're at. I think another opportunity to try to um, have maintained cost conscientiousness is um, risk stratification. So I know some institutions utilize uh, algorithms that say this patient's at a particular risk for complications from post-operative residual weakness, so let's, they, they uh, Sugamidex is acceptable in, in this instance. Um, and uh, this may be a way to kind of triage and, and utilize uh, the drug um, to hit the, the, the target patient population that it may have the biggest impact on. There is um, the rep score has been described by a uh, a group out of Boston developed and, and validated by a group out of Boston um, that, that is uh, readily available in, in the literature if anyone is interested in, in checking out the different components uh, to what goes into the REP score as a means for risk stratifying patients who may go on to have um, post-operative residual weakness. Um, but yeah, I think all of these things in combination um, could ultimately lead to a, a pretty fruitful quality improvement project at, at, each, uh, at, at individual institutions. One that could have an impact on patient safety and also uh, uh, an impact on the bottom line of the bo- um, and, and ultimately save money.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think there's a lot of great things in the future. I think there's a lot of great attention that's coming towards neuromuscular blockade and really a, a lot of awareness is coming around this. So this has been an absolutely Great pleasure for me to talk to you today, but I think that we're kind of coming into our uh, end of our time. So um, I want to thank the audience for joining us uh, for this ASHP Advantage podcast, uh, Engaging the Experts. So don't forget to check out the website, uh, www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash NMBR to view the recorded webinar, Reverse to Go Forward, Safe Neuromuscular Blockade and Reversal in the Perioperative Setting. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation, and be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcasts. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage Podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.